Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. If we've not met, it would be lovely to meet you afterwards. I do hope you can hang around. You've got an outline, and you should have a Bible. Do keep it open, and we'll work our way through Galatians chapter 5. Let's pray before we do so. Our Father God, we pray that you would help us tonight to, uh, to understand the truth about our hearts. Father, if we're honest, there is a huge amount of pride and self-deception in my heart, and I imagine in all of us. We pray that you would help us to see where we're blind to your truth. We pray that you would help us to see where we are foolishly acting like slaves. And we pray instead you would help us to turn back to the freedom and the life and the hope that comes in Christ. Amen. Man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. It's a pretty strong opening. Uh, The blistering first line from Jean-Jacques Rousseau's uh, The Social Contract. Now he was writing, and the French philosopher, he was writing about the tyranny of traditional culture. But he could well have been describing the Christian church, to be honest. His words describe the church that Paul is writing to in Galatia in AD 48. And I'll bet they apply to an awful lot of us here tonight. Our society thinks we are more free than ever, politically, sexually, culturally. The Bible, though, asserts that actually we're not as free as we like to think. That uh, we are slaves to our sinful desires. And we're born that way. It's not something that happens to us. We're born that way. You have to teach babies to to walk. You have to teach them to dress themselves. You have to teach them to say please and thank you. You never have to teach a child to be selfish or disobedient. It's a remarkable gifting that all children seem to share. We're born slaves. Slaves to our sinful desire to serve ourselves. And the glorious message of Christianity is that in Jesus Christ, we are set free. But to adapt Rousseau, Christians have been set free, but everywhere, we are in chains. 
And I'll bet if we were honest here tonight, many of us who call ourselves Christians would have to admit that we do not feel free. We feel weighed down, if we're honest. And if we were, if we were to play word association with Christianity, we would say rules. Do this, don't do that. If we were to play word association with uh, God, it would be judge, headmaster, policeman. We don't feel free. We feel like slaves weighed down by rules, watched in our every move by the great judge in the sky. And here in Galatians, Paul shows us in chapter 5 how on earth that happens to people who've been set free and how it is that Jesus Christ can rescue us from that slavery, that second slavery. Now we're back in uh, Galatians, we were in this uh, letter last term and we've come back to it to pick up the last two chapters. It's one of the first letters that was written in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia, modern day Turkey. He'd been on missionary journeys, um, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and a number of churches have grown up. And in the area of Galatia, these young Christians have got themselves into trouble. They've got confused about the central ideas of Christianity. How is it we're saved? And what does it look like to live life trusting and obeying Jesus? They're confused about the very heart of the Christian message. And in a nutshell, Paul has taught in chapters 1 to 4 that God has done everything in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus to save us from our sins. And the death that we deserve. God has done everything in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and the death we deserve. That's what he's been teaching. We're not saved by the stuff we do, but by the grace of God, by what he has done freely for us through Jesus Christ. We're not saved by what we do, but by what Jesus has done. We're saved by grace. And just as crucially, he's taught not only are we saved by grace, if you like, grace is the entry ticket. What Jesus has done is the entry ticket into the Christian life. It's the the membership fee. But just as crucially, we live by grace as well. Grace isn't just the way in, it's the way on as a Christian. We live by grace until the day we die. And now after four chapters, Paul turns to apply the glorious truth. We've had two chapters really of biography, two chapters of uh, serious theology, and now he turns to ethics. How do we live in the light of everything? Uh, Three points, and firstly you'll see there, live in Christ's freedom. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What is this freedom? Well, the freedom that the Christian has is freedom from sin, from death, and from Satan. Those three, sin, death, and Satan. Before we trusted Jesus, we were slaves to sin. Now, we might have resisted sometimes. We don't always do the wrong thing. But what we can't change is is the, the appetites of our hearts. Our nature, our basic desire is to live for me. All of us are like that. The heart of sin is we, instead of living our lives, being characterized by generous loving of God and loving of other people, we turn in on ourselves. I have the right to decide what is right and wrong. I have the right to live how I want to live. 
to fulfill me. I must be true to myself. We turn in on self. And when we do that, secondly, we turn away from the God who is life and we find ourselves slaves to death. That's the sentence that sin deserves, is death. Death is what we deserve. Death is where we're heading. And the fear of death is the slave prison that every human being knows, that awful dread of what is to come when life ends. Thirdly, we are slaves of Satan. Uh, Slaves of Satan in the sense that when we sin, when I do what is not God's will, when I serve myself, I'm actually doing Satan's will as well. The fact that I do it voluntarily doesn't change the most fundamental point, which is when I do what I want to do rather than what God lovingly instructs, I'm serving Satan. And so I act as a slave to sin, to death, and to Satan. But Christ has set you free. That's what Paul proclaims here. Christ has set you free, so don't go turning back to slavery. Don't go to prison when you've been let out. Now, what he has in mind here, though, is very, very different from turning back to their old pagan ways. It's quite the opposite. His fear is that they will turn to a very different sort of slavery, not the slavery of doing whatever I want, but the slavery of being very religious, very obedient, and very morally upright. Not a slave to sinful indulgence, but a slave to religious rule-keeping. A slave to obeying the Bible, but doing so because I think if I do this well enough, if I obey the Bible well enough, if I do what God says, if I go to church on time, if I give regularly, if I do these things, God will have to accept me. Thinking that uh, these things keep me on the right side of God. And that is slavery because it is joy sapping, it is tiring, it is in, it's just not freedom. But we do it. All Christians fall into this at different points. This idea that uh, actually how I relate to God, whether God approves of me, accepts me, it's down to how well I'm living. And the reason that we fall into it, and we all do so so easily, is because we love to be able to think that I've done it by my good works. It's pride, vanity, ego. It's a wonderful feeling to think, I did it. I did it. I'm right with God. He's happy with me because of what I am doing. That's why we love to do it. And this is why minor surgery is a major issue. Why circumcision is such a serious issue. Because circumcision is the first step on this road, as we'll see. So don't fall into the slavery of law-keeping. Let's look at uh, verses 2 to 6 as we see um, how Paul explains how we fall into this slavery. If you want to summarize his big point here, it's don't turn the cross into a ladder. Don't turn the cross into a ladder. You see, being accepted by God, being right with God, is achieved for us by the cross. Jesus dies in our place. Our sins are paid for. That's what makes you and me acceptable to God. Our sins have been paid for, so we're welcome before God. We swapped places with Jesus. His righteous life is given to us. Our filthy life is punished in him on the cross. And Paul says, don't trade in the cross for a ladder that you have to climb up. The ladder of the law, of doing good stuff. 
It's the slavery, not of slavery to my sinful desires, doing what I want, but the slavery of keeping the law, the slavery of thinking how well I do measures how acceptable I am to God. Look with me at 5.2 and we'll see what he means. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, why does Paul get so het up about circumcision here? Back in Acts 16, he encourages his assistant missionary, Timothy, to get circumcised. So why is that all right, but it's you know, a bad thing here? Well, for this very good reason, circumcision can mean one of two very, very, very different things. In Acts 16, Paul wanted Timothy to get circumcised so that he was culturally acceptable to the Jewish people he was speaking to about Jesus. Neither Paul nor Timothy thought that the act of circumcision would bring him one step closer to God. Jesus has already done that. It was a cultural option, not a spiritual necessity. The opposite is the case here. The false teachers in Galatia are encouraging circumcision as a spiritual necessity. Look at verses 3 to 4. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. You see, for them, circumcision is the entryway to living your life under God's law. The Old Testament system was you related to God through the law. You obeyed the law and that's how you related to God and enjoyed his blessing or suffered his punishment. In the New Testament, that changes. Jesus has stepped between us and the law. He's fulfilled it on our behalf. He's suffered the punishment for our failures. And the Galatians are wanting to push Jesus out of the way and start having to obey the law again themselves. Circumcision wasn't just a cultural thing for them. It was a step to getting rid of the cross and climbing back onto the ladder of law, trying to climb their way up to God. Now, we should obey God, but that sort of obedience is slavery. When you think your good works determine whether or not you are welcoming God's presence or not. Your good works determine whether or not you can come close to God or not. You live in fear, continually having to do more. No security that the job is done. No rest, no joy. Always the fear that I'm not quite good enough or that I'll fall out of God's favor because I failed. And, and on the times when things are going well, just a swelling pride and self-satisfaction. None of which is anything like true Christianity. Look at verse five. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. Christ teaches us not to work for our salvation, our righteousness, being accepted by God. Not to work for it, but to wait for it. Because it's a gift given to us, done by somebody else. Circumcision, as he says, it's neither here nor there. It makes no difference. Christ has done everything to make you right with God. Everything. Absolutely everything. And so our loving obedience to God, when we, when we serve him, when we fight sin, when we're generous, those things, they're not, they're not ladders that we climb up to God to impress him. They are acts of 
grateful response to people who've been set free. Not a duty, but a loving work. It is an either-or situation, this, but it's one that we get very, very confused by as Christians. So let me try to explain it this way. If you find yourself in a criminal court, the first thing that happens is the judge turns to the defendant and reads out the charge and says, do you plead guilty or not guilty? There are only two options at that point. It is an either-or. You can plead guilty and ask for mercy. Or you can plead not guilty and say justice will clear me. When you stand before God, accused of being a sinner, as all of us do, we can plead guilty or not guilty. We can plead guilty and ask for mercy because Jesus has died in our place. Or I can plead not guilty and say, look at my obedience, God. Look at how I live. You ought to accept me on that basis. You either rely on the cross I'm guilty, please have mercy. Or you ignore the cross and take the ladder and say, look how high I've climbed up your law. Look how well I've obeyed you. Look at all the good things I've done. But if you do the latter, if you think you can climb your way up to God, then verse two says, Christ is of absolutely no use to you whatsoever. You're basically saying, Jesus, it's nice of you to go and die on the cross and everything, but you didn't really need to do it. I mean, I'm quite fabulous. I mean, I, I mean, look at how well I live. You know, it was very kind of you to, you know, give me a start and everything. But I can take it from here. I can do perfectly well. I think you'll find God will be delighted with the way I'm living. Now, most of us get that. And it, it sounds a little bit clunky. And you think, yeah, I'm not that stupid as a Christian. But the crucial thing that the Galatians had forgotten is... We mustn't start with the cross and then turn to the ladder. We mustn't think that the, the cross, if you like, is like training wheels on a bicycle. You know, all right to get you going, but once you know what you're doing, you get rid of them. You know, the, uh, you trust in Jesus' forgiveness while well, well, you're still a bit of a mess. But, you know, once, you, once you've got the hang of the Christian life, you no longer need to trust in Jesus' death. Because you're doing pretty well on your own. You're obeying God well. You're living a good moral life. Now, before you think I would never be that stupid... Let me play out two scenarios for you, for the Christians who are here. One, you're a Christian. You sleep well, all week as it happens. And so you wake up quite early. And you do what all of us do first thing in the morning and reach for your smartphone. But instead of turning to the Instagram feed, you turn to your Bible reading app. And you read your Bible every morning. And pray. And not just for yourself. You even pray for missionaries. And uh, you, you have a good quiet time every morning and you go into work and you work hard. And on the first day in work, on Monday, a colleague asks what you did for the weekend and you mention church and they ask you about your beliefs and amazingly, miracle of miracles, you manage to have a discussion about the gospel. Extraordinary. Wonderful. You get early for midweek Bible study, your group's on serving and you don't make any excuses, you know who I'm talking to, and, uh, and you sit with the slightly difficult person and help them with things in the study and you stay late to clear up you go out Saturday night with your mates and you honor God in the way you talk and the amount you have to drink Sunday afternoon rolls around and it's time to go to church scenario two you slept badly a couple of mornings you sleep right through the alarm 
The other mornings, well, you did plan to have a quiet time, but there were the kind of catch-up videos from the Winter Olympics, and there was a there was a whole string of things on WhatsApp, and and by the time you realised you were running late for work anyway, and work work goes pretty badly this week. You mess up something, and worse still, you lie to cover your tracks. And then there's uh, somebody was just taking the mick out of that slightly strange Christian in the office. And you laughed along with them, rather than standing up for them. You go out Saturday night and, well, you're quite glad that actually none of your Christian friends were there because you didn't cover yourself in glory, let's put it that way. Sunday afternoon rolls around. It's time to go to church. How do you feel in each of those scenarios? Now, of course, you should feel bad if you bring shame on God. And you should feel good when you're living well. That's normal. And sin is disgraceful. And it matters that we obey God when we're Christians. It really matters. But... But if in the first scenario you feel like I can walk into church with my head held high because of how I've lived this week. If I feel like I'm, I'm on the right side of God right now. Things are good. I'm sure God will answer my prayers this week. And if in the second scenario you feel like I should probably give church a miss this week. I need to just you know, probably give it a week before I come back, before I pray to God. Now, you've got to be very, very careful. Sin matters, and of course we should feel bad when we, when we sin and bring disgrace on God. But, but all of us are tempted to trade the cross for the ladder and to think that functionally, when I've been a Christian a couple of years, whether I'm welcome before God, whether God views me as righteous and acceptable, it is basically down to how well I'm living. And living like that is slavery and miserable because you have to earn it every day. Lastly, verse 7 to 12, beware those who avoid the offense of the cross. Now the focus shifts at the end from the Galatian Christians to the false teachers who have been throwing them into confusion. We'll start at verses 7 to 10. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. The best event at the Winter Olympics, whatever you think it is, it is the border cross. It is like the wacky races or Mario Kart on snow. It's fantastic to watch. Six races at the same time on snowboards, and never more than about two of them managed to make it to the end because of the collisions. High speed, um, high impact, and absolutely ridiculous. It just... Brilliant to watch. Must be a nightmare to take part in. Uh, But the the thing is, if you're going to get to the bottom of the run, you need to do a whole lot more than just snowboard fast and straight. It's not enough to worry about yourself and, and the course. You've also got to worry about everybody else. 
Because there are always people taking you out, smashing you over, colliding with you. And the truth is that as Paul writes to the Galatians, he reminds us too that not all the problems in the Christian life are down to my sinful heart or the temptations that come from outside. Sometimes, sometimes we trip over and we fail as Christians because of unhelpful ideas, half-truths, misunderstandings, seriously misleading ways of thinking about God that we pick up from friends or from popular podcasts or books. Not every book that is sold in a Christian bookshop and that quotes the Bible is biblical and faithful. Don't be naive. Don't be naive. Uh, We get uncomfortable when uh, Paul talks about the false teachers being punished by God in verse 10. We get uncomfortable when I start saying that some things are wrong. But it gets a whole lot worse in verse 11 to 12. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Saying, look, if they're so keen on chopping off bits of their privates, I wish they'd go the whole way and castrate themselves. Ouch. Literally. I mean, it, and yes, there's a, there's a, there's a wordplay in the Greek. Whatever way you cut it, no pun intended, this is pretty, yeah, seriously, that was, uh, whatever way you look at it, this is brutal language. You know, Paul is, he's making a joke at their, at their expense, but he's being pretty brutal. You know, you're God's apostle and you're saying, I wish they'd go and castrate themselves. Why on earth does Paul write like that? The end of last year, the World Health Organization issued a report looking on medication in, and medicines in the developing world. Their statistic was that 10.3% of all medicine sold in the developing world is total fake. Not just out of date, but total fake. One of the largest issues is anti-malarial drugs that are basically just pounded up potato and cornstarch. That's it. Around the world every year, and this is mainly children, 69,000 die because of fake malaria medication. Mainly children, 69,000 a year. Fake medication leads to death. Now, I hope it's obvious that it doesn't matter how good those tablets taste or how much people enjoy taking them. If they are fake, they are powerless to save you from a very, very serious condition, malaria. And the people who flog them ought to be punished very, very severely. The same goes for people who teach falsehoods about how you and I should relate to God. Sin and the wrath of God on Judgment Day are very serious issues. And so people who tell lies and untruths about how we can be saved, how we relate to God, that's a very serious matter. Paul is right to be angry. Paul is right to call for their punishment. You know, consistently, the most pushback I get preaching is when, um, rarely, but sometimes happens, name a particular book or particular set of teachings or teacher and say this is really unhelpful and unhealthy. And there's always lots of pushback. But the truth is that we're not doing our job 
as elders at this church unless we protect the people we love from teaching that will harm. Now, there are lots of false teachings uh, identified in the New Testament. There's a whole heap of things that go on as you read through the whole New Testament. But the hallmark of the particular false teaching that the Galatians are falling for is mentioned in verse 11. Now, Paul says that if he was teaching people to get circumcised and to relate to God through keeping the law like the other teachers, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. He's saying they wouldn't be persecuting me and the offence of the cross has been abolished. The offence of the cross. He's saying that's what the false teachers get rid of. That's how you can spot them. The cross is offensive. And if you don't think the cross is offensive, it might mean that you don't really understand it. The reason the cross is offensive is this. The cross says to you and to me, you are not good enough for God. And there is absolutely no way that someone with a heart like you and a track record like you can ever, ever come before God and be accepted. That's why the cross is offensive. Wonderfully, the cross also says, but what you and I cannot do, God has done. Jesus died in agony. So that what we could never achieve has been given to us as a gift. It's offensive, but it's wonderful. And that has always been a problem for humans like you and me. And so people claiming to be Christians have always sought to try to get rid of the offense of the cross. Because it really kicks us in our pride. The vicar at one of my placement churches when I was at theological college was very happy to say this quite clearly. He said to me, I would rather go to hell than believe in a God like yours who has to punish sin to forgive us. Extraordinary. Most people don't do it quite that blatantly, but the offense of the cross is abolished when Christian leaders mock or water down or explain away the Bible's teaching on sin so that you don't need to seek God's forgiveness for how you're living. God loves you the way you are. Actually, The Bible is more a story of how God believes in you and accepts you. When people talk, write, preach, blog, whatever it is, in such a way as to lead you to think that we can come before God, we can be acceptable to God, we can enter a relationship with God through any way other than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross... When they do that, they are abolishing the offense of the cross. But of course, as the Galatians have had to learn, it's not just about being saved. You can abolish the offense of the cross, or try to, in the way you relate to God once you're a Christian. I uh, used to teach rock climbing a bit um, in my youthful days um, at at a Christian kids camp. And there were... We would uh, top rope lots of the, the climbs on the cliffs. And so I would be stood at the top and there would be the ropes attached. And then there would be, um, the, the child would be, who's learning to climb would be sort of down there. And they would be tied on to, to the rope. And often they get about 10 feet above ground and then suddenly realize that they're high enough to hurt themselves. And the thing is, they're tied to a rope which could take a minibus being pushed off the cliff and be fine. 
10 mil climbing ropes, incredibly strong things these days. Uh, But there would be absolutely gibbering fear. And the thing that they would do, all of them would do the same thing, is grip the rope for dear life. Uh, Feet sort of doing the sewing machine leg on the rock and gripping the rope. (laughs) And there's no need. They're, They're securely tied. An unbreakable figure eight knot to a rope strong enough to take a minibus attached to a massive cliff above them. They're free to enjoy climbing, but they act like they're, if I don't hold on, if I don't hold on, I'm going to die. And it's silly and ridiculous, and it's how most of us Christians are tempted to live day in, day out. If I don't live well enough, I'm going to be, there's no way God will keep loving me. There's no way that God will forgive me unless I'm good enough. There's no way. We're tied tightly to God, and he is slowly but surely pulling us home. And so we are free to live lives serving others, loving others. We're free. And it's a terrible shame when we act like slaves, when we have been set free. You know, we're encouraged to receive salvation as a free gift. And yet how often are we discouraged that I don't deserve it and I can't pay for it? Our heart sinks at the confession and we long for the week when I could come to confession and not feel like I have anything really to confess. We long to to not have to rely on Jesus' death in my place and instead to be able to hold my head up high and say, God, I'm here because I've lived so well. God has made us his children and yet when we think like that, it's as if we say, I want to go from being a child to being a slave. I want to be able to say I've earned it by my work. And so we pray or read the Bible and it's a duty. And the main thing is that we've ticked it off and maybe God will answer my prayers because I've done what he wants me to now. Suffering hits, and we think that's not fair. Given, I mean, look at how I've lived, God. All the all the sins that I've I've not done that I could have done, and and I I've been doing so much for you, and and this is how I get repaid. In other words, it means I think that when life's going well, I've earned it from God. I'm relating like a slave who thinks I work for rewards, rather than a son who's given as a free gift. You can talk about grace, you can sing about grace, you can have grace tattooed on your ankle in Greek and still not get this. All of us as Christians, we're hardwired in our heart to want to be able to say, I did it, I earned it. And yet God gives us as a free gift salvation. The question to ask yourself is, what makes you think tonight that you are right with God? What makes you think he will accept you on judgment day? What makes you think he'll answer those prayers that you are most desperate to see answered? The only right and biblical answer to those questions is this. Jesus has done everything. Jesus has done everything. Not just enough to save you, but enough to get you home. Enough to bring you all the blessings of God. 
now and into eternity. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So enjoy his freedom. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are so sorry for how often we, uh, we reject your cross and turn to a ladder for how, how much we long to be able to say we've done it, we've deserved it. Father, we thank you so much that you have set us free, that there is nothing left for us to pay, nothing more for us to do, that you have made us your children. You've qualified us for heaven. You've declared us righteous and all through Jesus' death on our behalf. And so we pray we would stop acting like slaves, stop longing to be able to say we've done it. And instead we would enjoy the freedom of being able to serve you and love others, not as if our life depends on it, but because we love you and we want to do what pleases you. Amen.